is Fab Radio International. Okay, so let me get this right. We follow the rabbit. No, leave the rabbit alone. The rabbit looks like he knows what he's doing. He is, he's following us. I thought we were following him. Oh God, it's all gone horribly wrong already, hasn't it? Anyway, you're listening to Brave New Words. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... Producer Al. I'm Ross. (laughs) And I'm Del. And you can't hear the rabbit because he's a rabbit, but he's called Hartley. One of them is. Yes. So, anyway. Uh, both be. We're completely lost. We're somewhere in L space still. I think this bit looks a bit like the Fab Radio Studios. Give me a check. Give me a moment. No, that's not the Fab Radio Studios. That's Dalek, but that's not the Fab Radio Studios. Right. It's difficult. It's easy to tell them. <laughs> I keep running. Uh, and while they're running, you can listen to a jingle. That was a lovely jingle. Lovely. Jingle. We should do a book. um, Because that's the point of the show. That's why you listen. Um, I'm assuming someone's listening to the show. If you are listening to the show, you can tweet us at Radio Bookworm on Twitter. If you use Twitter, you can find us on the Super Secret Brave New Words Book Club on the Facebooks as well, uh, which is apparently how you pronounce it because I'm um, you know uh, older person, so I have to call it the Facebooks, uh, the Facebooks, obviously. Mm-hmm. And we're on other social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Instagram. Yes, we're... There might be a Tumblr account that we've forgotten about. I'm not entirely sure. No, there is a Tumblr account. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm. I feel like the Tumblr account is sort of like our mind palace. Yes, where we store random stuff. Yeah, yeah. At the moment it's quite small. And all, and very old shows. Very uh, the, the, all of the previous, when back when we were the bookworm, all of the old bookworm shows are in there somewhere. Um, so um, we have. We have the latest book by David Gemmell, which is a problem because I'm yeah. pretty sure he's dead. Yes. He is. What? It's, For it's, a long time. Yeah, he, he passed away about 11 years ago. Um, this is Rhyming Rings, which he wrote in the late 80s, which didn't get published at the time. Ooh, is there a reason for that? Um, I, I don't actually know if there was a reason for, for, as such. Uh, well, okay, I can think of a reason, but uh, okay. In <coughs> David Gemmell, for those of you not familiar, he's a fancy author. He's well regarded as a fancy author since the early 80s, or since he published his first novel, Legend. And he wrote about 30 books over his the writing career. Um kind Most... of seen as almost the voice of epic fantasy of that type. Yeah, there's well, there's a description that a fan of his, who became one of his proofreaders as well, gave that if he was describing fantasy, this is the sort of story you would expect to be told around a campfire to soldiers who've just come back from war. It was stories about violent people. And the corollary uh, by the same guy was Guy Gabriel Kay is um, an author who told stories to kings. Uh, in courtrooms David Gunn was definitely this is sort of more earthy more violent stories but he became known for fantasy stories about soldiers about heroes slightly creaky shelves sorry about so, that <laughs> <laughs> we're in the creaky part of our stop states. sitting on the shelves Ed. <laughs> okay so David Gunn so he's well known as a fantasy author but toward, at some point he tried to get published a thriller set in London which I believe is being published later this year it was published under the um, the title was White Knight Black Swan, 
and oh, his public and yeah. his publishers suggested that because it wasn't a fancy novel, he should publish it under a pen name. Okay. So it was published under the name Ross Harding, and consequently wasn't republished afterwards because nobody associated that name with anything he'd done. So, and that may be the reason why if he produced. When he produced Rhyming Rings, it also wasn't published. I don't know what point he wrote. Rhyming it. Rings is one of his very early works. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know how early. I mean, it, it's the, the the theme I get from having read it is it's set in the eighties. It, it's yeah, um, set in West London in the eighties, and I, see, I got the vibe from reading about it that it was very early on in his career as well because it's about a journalist it's about a journalist who at one point mentions he's writing a fantasy novel when we say it's set in the 80s it's actually it was set in it was in, in the present yeah. time yeah. before yes. when it was written yeah okay. um, so he wrote so Black, Black Knight White Swan which is being republished later this year finally under the name David Gemmell uh, and he wrote Rhyming Rings which I've only found out about a few months ago mentioned on the show a couple of a few weeks back and we've got hold of a copy, uh, and it's lovely. It's it's an early basically it's an early game. Um, yeah, mm. it's. I think I'm not very familiar with his fantasy work, as I still haven't gone through the Gamble quest yet. Oh. Um, I partially did this so I could review it as someone who hadn't read a lot of Gamble. So as a well, thriller the, novel, go on. I found it to be surprisingly fantastic. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um. Because it's got, it's about a psychic, for a start. Yeah. And a serial killer. Yep. And a very large gentleman who's a bit of a legend. Yeah. As in, he's very large and has had a long history and gone through a lot of stuff. Yeah. So it's got all those elements into it. But, again, I don't know, I don't know Gemmell. Mm. I don't know the fancy works. Um... It reminded me an awful lot of those kind of those eighties kind of supernatural fantasy dramas because I wouldn't describe that as a thriller. I would describe Rhyming Rings as a supernatural thriller because one of the characters is a psychic for a start. Yeah, there's a prophecy, um, but it's mostly about the main character is a journalist. He works for a local paper. I believe Gamble worked for the Daily Mail at one point. Mail and the Mirror, I think. He, yeah. he was he was the least qualified candidate when he applied, but he was that arrogant in the interview they hired him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that says so much. <laughs> yeah, um, he. I mean, he his first three novels uh, as a, the first three f- published fantasy novels he wrote were while he was a journalist, um, and his the third one he based so many of the characters on people he was working with, including a general he based on someone who supervised him, who took it as a personal insult and promptly fired him. Um, so, the fate of that character in a subsequent novel was not nearly as pleasant. <laughs> are all three of the the first three, sorry, are they all Draenei novels? Yeah, the first three were Legend, Legend uh, King The Beyond King Behind the Gate. the Gate, and Waylander. Waylander is... Oh, you can't. Uh, if, yeah. if, if, if if Waylander is the character that he was based on, you can't be upset. Or no, it was Karnak. Karnak the one eye. Brilliant. <laughs> Karnak the one eye. Yeah, is is boisterous, arrogant, and yeah, there's a lot to dislike about him. But also a lot charismatic, but a lot to dislike. Char- as well. Charismatic, charismatic, unlikable, and um... there is a there's a line I think where he's he, he's wearing a, a suit made of blue something and green something and yellow something else, and someone says you you dressed in the dark. Says, yeah, I'm built for 
you know, I dress for comfort, not for fashion. And this may have been one of the things that annoyed his the, mm-hmm. the Gemmell supervisor. Unlikable, charismatic, and ambitious. So yeah. a journalist then. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Right. No. Right. Yeah, okay, so, yeah, the guy who would, Karnak would have been based, the guy who Karnak would have been based on was would have been, yeah, the editor at one of these newspapers. Gamble himself was also an arrogant and a newspaper journalist, uh, and a couple of the characters in stories are based on him. He he did base a couple of the characters after himself. Uh, Regnak from Legend, mm. uh, Gellan, who's one of the soldiers who does at one point fight under Karnak in Waylander, and I think the journalist in Rhyming Rings. So what is Rhyming Rings about? Well, as you point out, yeah, it's it is there is a you know, a series of murders occur. There is a serial killer out there. There is a journalist who is approached by a psychic who says, "I think I can help. Can you put me in touch with the police, or police?" And very quietly, they are, they put her in touch with the police and attempt to solve the mystery. Uh, her psychic powers is along the lines of, if she touches a piece of metal, she gets a sense of history from it. So one of the so the rhyming rings are wedding rings that she touches along the way to try and get some of the truth. She can't read everything, but she does get a significant enough sense that things unfold. Um, Psychometric visions, I think it's. So rather than a thriller, is it like a crime mystery then? Because I don't think in my head they're not the same thing. I would say it's closer to a crime mystery. I would call it a supernatural thriller. Okay. In the sense that I would call, I would call this the lovely bones a supernatural thriller, but I think that'd be maudlin supernatural thriller. Mm. Um, d- just to use a popular book as an example, um, I would definitely call it. Yeah, it's it's it, it, because it's got that element in it, and it relies on the otherness of certain characters because it's not just her; she has a friend. She does. I, I don't remember what the character's name up and I can look it up. But he is uh he has got a long past of a history and he's also very scary. Yeah. I mean he's a man in his sixties, he's fourteen wars, he's Is it Is this yeah. pre is this pre legend? I don't know, this is my sure point. Is. If he's I mean if you're talking as his time as a journalist, then yeah, yeah. Um well he was he wrote journalist he wrote the original draft of what became Legend in the late seventies became published, I think, in somewhere between eighty two and eighty four. Because ultimately, it just sounds like Ed is describing a Druff's character, so, so wondering if yeah. one fed the other. Um, yeah, I mean, there there are characters resembling Druff in, in quite a lot of you know, yeah. novels, and this and one then is Druss, dis- sometimes just yeah. Druss, again. sometimes just Druss. Because <laughs> Hang Druss on, is, wait. Because Druss is Druss. <laughs> I think the implication is is that they're not entirely sure, but it was pretty much written roughly at the same time he was writing. The stuff that would eventually become legend, right? Okay. So well, roughly the same, mm. same time, same scale. Yeah, he abandoned. He wrote it and then didn't do anything with it. it. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know. I mean, presume. I mean, maybe if Legend hadn't sold and hadn't done quite as well, then he would have gone back and tried this one a bit more. I don't know. I don't know what the obviously because I don't know the the Game of Fantasy novels, but that's a very it's a fairly grimy London. It's a fairly grimy London. Eighties London. Yeah, he's I, a fairly grimy writer, I think, a lot of the times. Even when he's writing pretty things, they're pretty things set in a dark moment. Um, or in a troubled kind of world. Um, it's 
I kind of I think that's one of the things that made him him in his stories and his writing style in that there was always trouble and there was always darkness and he likes to test his character as in the characters wonder you know why has the why has the, the source as he usually described the religion of his world why is the, has the source chosen me to do this thing why is it confronting me with so many enemies I think in at least a couple of novels it points out to the bad guys hang on maybe this, all the source needs is just one good person fighting continuing to fight the baddies so you you do occasionally get now that I'm light. Bye, bye. That, that, okay. that, that that sells me on that series yeah um, I mean he's subtle but he, he, does, he covertly preach well no it's not really covert preaching as such because he does spell that out to a couple of characters but yeah. it, it is you know it is uh, about a lot of it is about hope and about how fortunes wane oh, and change. Yeah, so much. So, for example, is about hope. Does it, yeah. So, for example, um, and just understanding what people are like. So, for example, the first novel, Legend, is set on a fortress. These uh, you've got about ten thousand soldiers facing half a million, a million or more, and angry enemies who want to kill them. But we're on a fo- the greatest fortress ever, but it's seriously undermanned because only there's only ten thousand soldiers there. This, there are six walls of this fortress. Each of them is named, and the first wall is. Yep, we we we're on the first wall. We you know we've got six walls. We've got, we can stand against anything. The second wall is called the wall of desperation because we've just lost one mm-hmm. and we think we now we know we're vulnerable. The third one is the wall of renewed hope because okay, well there's at least three more still to go after this and we've still you know we we're still here. And then the you know the all the walls are gradually yeah we started to accept that things are you know that things are inevitably gonna we're gonna keep losing walls. We are eventually and the sixth wall is death, but. Yeah, it, it's it's called the Wall of Death. Yeah, yeah. it's called Geddon. It's <laughs> that's the name he picked for it. Um, so yeah, he, he so, but yeah, you've got that sort of understanding of right. You've got generals who understand their soldiers who say, okay, well, if we do this, then these people are probably going to run. Be- you know, and I understand that this, this is the reaction I want these people to have. Uh, you get moments where people are are micro strategizing things in battles. Um, there's a moment in. The legends of the first chronicles are just a legend where Dross, mm. being a legendary hero, even in his mid 40s, which is quite you know, still is seriously an old age in these stories, he's leading the defense against a vastly over overnumbering force. And two of the enemy soldiers run in, one of them to deliberate one tries to attack him deliberately so that he'll get stabbed and um, cut in half by the axe, so the other one can try and cut him, cut him while the axe is somewhere else. And in that moment, Dross sees the danger, sidesteps, kills both of them, and then leads the charge in the opposite direction at the moment where the enemy thought they were going to do something great because he understands the way things go in, in battles. And he's just got this instinctive sense of, right, this is how battles are actually going to start being fought. And it's... And, you know, it's... Okay, it's... it's Druss himself says, why on earth did they turn and run at that moment? Because he himself doesn't understand it. It's just one of those, he understands it, he just doesn't know he understands it. One of my favourite, so it's ah, so it's about instinct and instinctual understandings of things, which is interesting because that because Rhyming Rings has the, the main character doesn't believe in himself at all, doesn't really have any confidence as to, and lots of people call him say that he's a bad person. It's not true. They just don't like him. He's not a bad person. He's just don't like. Well, him. yeah, early, yeah, early part in this in Rhyming Rings, you have a, an arrogant character who thinks he's going to do great things at the newspaper, and it turns out isn't actually applying himself hard enough, and isn't putting in the legwork that everybody else is doing, which is why they think maybe you're not you're not joining, you're not contributing enough to the team. So 
there is an actual arrogance to him. It's just he, in his head, he thinks he's a hotshot, and he's not quite as much of a hotshot. Yeah, as he he's not as clever as a smart. No, but it's nice to see a character flaw actually expressed as a character flaw. So, but I think character is actually one of the things that David Gemmell is best at. Every there's there's no one that comes out of a David Gemmell story having just been a device. Um, he'll introduce you. He's also, I think. Because David Gemmell, the first adult genre novel I ever read was a David Gemmell novel, and it was Echoes of the Great Song, and it's still a book that I will always hold very dear to my heart, um, and I think one of my favourite my favourite books, nearly. And um, he literally, there's no such thing as a throwaway, and he will introduce you to a character and give you an insight to who they are the page before this person dies, and it's. Nice. You are finding out. It's basically. It's almost so that every everyone counts. It's not just that we're going to hear about or see this body. It's like we're going to learn about the person that body was and what got them. To, what why they're on top of this, um, like this wall essentially with a, a, a sword hole in their heart. Um, there's an absolute soul to everyone that he writes, and he knows them all. Um, and then the worlds that he creates are fantastic as well like uh, well literally um but the worlds he knows the worlds and therefore because he understands how the worlds work he can understand how the people within those those sections of society work and therefore he can create them um there's this wonderful in the Drenai series this is really wonderful tribal people who live in the woods and they um, they don't say the way that we would say like goodbye. Their goodbye translates as "May all your dreams come true, but one." And that's the way they say goodbye to people because in their head they're like, "What is the point of life if you have nothing left to strive for?" Yeah. And it's just just these little tiny beautiful little things that that's, are packed into these I have amazing seen, stories. I, possibly only since reading them again novels, but then again I was. When I started reading Debbie Gemma novels, mm-hmm. uh, I started seeing bars which say they, they are literally called the All But One, but, but All Bar One. And oh, I don't know, and I don't know where, where, where exactly the phrase comes from, which I'm sure it's not a Gemma phrase first, but, but it's a good pun. But it's a good yeah. pun, yeah, the All Bar One. And I think there's always this because, much we're talking about the supernatural element in this book, I think it's really interesting that he is an amazing supernatural writer um and this yeah these realms of fantasy that exist w- within his stories so like for example echoes of the great song there's a lot of say like, magic crystals that create power in the land in the Drenai, there's just kind of enchantment around that kind of and this this mysticism that some people will tap into and then his troy trilogy there's no element of supernatural in it in any way shape or form anything that is attributed to gods or mysticism or anything along those lines in the stories that we know and we've been told has been absolutely taken out and removed and it's just a story about people um there, there are prophecies it's amazing. In that there's yeah. still but i think because that yeah. was a big part of how the greek system worked wasn't mm. it like as most things got done because the prophets had told you uh, but like because cassandra isn't really and there's like a mysticism there but it's n- not a lot. Um, no, he, he... I loved the way that the Troy stories worked. Because I was in my very early 20s when I read them. 
and I really liked that it felt like someone else who was writing understood the way that I understand love because a big part of the Troy stories is that idea that there is more than one type of love in the world and sometimes you will love more than one person but those loves are different and those loves mean different things and those loves all serve different purposes and it was actually really nice to see that in a story especially a story taken outside of the realms of magic um, yeah his, his work has been described as low fantasy and he does make this the point about love a few times of you have you know love for family members love uh, passionate love for a lover you have love you know, love your the brotherhood classic Greek definitions of love mm. yeah there's a, a the main character in Troy is uh, the wife of Hector or she becomes the wife of Hector and she's told that she has not even that she will have that you have three loves um one is the moon one is the oak and one is fire um and then as she gets to know these people she realizes like which one is her moon which one is her fire and which one is her oak and it's he's just a beautiful man that has beautiful ideas that he writes in a beautiful way and i there are so few of his books that have not reduced because I, I cry all the time we know this I'm a weeper but I become a blubbering mess Is there's it, so many of them when you're talking about the loves is it the love the, the empathic love the friend love the unconditional love and and the the the, the erotic love or is it um, more, more than that for her, those, are, those are the four is, <laughs> she's, she's got three so the fire, her fire is the kind of the person like so that was yeah that's quite a uh, passion um so can't stay away from each other they're just drawn to each other even though it's not actually healthy for either of them um but they yeah there's always fire the oak is that stable love that's always um it kind of came from a place of calm and is strong and nurturing and will continue to grow and has deep roots that will never leave you Philia. And the moon, the moon, I don't, because that's, um, I don't remember which character it is. Ca- not Cassie, Calliope. Oh. It's, uh, Patroclus' sister. Um, that's her, that, she's her moon. Um, so I think that potentially just comes from a lesbian idea. Uh, but un- also is it, she's is she's a gentle love and they looked after each other kind of thing they, it's unconditional love for each other that's that's agape i think to an extent all of them are quite agapic in their in their own way but it's just it's all of it every every single novel of his that i've read i've had an attachment to at some point um he is not scared to kill people uh, not in like a George R. R. Martin way either. Like every death means something, and it's there for a purpose. Um, not just because someone asked for a book. Sometimes characters die, and it's not well. It, it, it's yeah. It's it's not meaningful more from one point of view, but it has devastating consequences. Yeah. yeah. See, I'm I'm sold uh, simply for the for the you know it just takes one person to stand. Mm. Yeah. Uh, because one of my favorite TV series of all time is for the writing is Angel, yeah, um, by Josh Reardon. Um I have an entire rant about how Josh Reardon is not a feminist, but he is anti-patriarchy, and that looks close enough from a distance. And that's a that's a that's a different show. We'll, 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 <laughs> yeah. That's that's an essay that you'll probably be able to buy from me on Mad Norwegian Press or something. But um, yeah, 
there is there are scenes in that where they basically go, "Why are we fighting again?" And it's your various characters turn around and say, "Because what else would you do?" Yeah, you can either you can either live the rest of your mm. life knowing that you ignored it, and it probably won't change anything, but you will know. Yeah, or you can do something. Dross is kind of an archetypal world character. Like he's 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 the pillar in a lot of stories, and most of Dross's stories are embedded in war because that's what he's good at and that's what he's known for. But his hero his heroism it's not like other I say legends but he he's his legend is not like the legend of other characters that you come across of a similar kind of vein like he is the old sturdy man who has who has lived um and he has the experience but where he came from to become the legend that everybody knows I remember when I first read about where how he started i was quite surprised because i'd not read that sort of story before um because it's all just misinterpreted wasn't it really like it came yeah it, it, i mean the, the the novel which covers it is the first chronicles of just the legend and basically he spends most of a decade questing because raiders have kidnapped his wife and he wants his wife back so he goes after them because he's got an axe and everything he comes who comes up against him when he's wielding this axe he kills. Partly because the axe is cursed, but we won't go into that right now. Snogger! <laughs> Snogger the Sun, yeah. Uh, which p- people may have seen at Gamble Awards as because they... It's, it's the Gamble Awards. They yeah, it's they cursed. keep giving it... <laughs> yeah, we won't go into that. <laughs> I said we won't go into that. <laughs> no, 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 hang on. So, so Graham McNeil, he won, I think, the first or the second Gamble Award yeah. uh, for his novel Empire. Yeah. Uh, of which his gamble war did fall off his wall and embed <laughs> itself into his mantelpiece because it's an axe. Yeah, because um, it's an axe. Those awards are not messing around, are they? No, oh, someone's almost got like uh, a premature haircut. Do you like? Oh, thank you very much. Um, at the gambles, also I'm told. Mm. Um, well, yeah. So one of the first things Drust does while pursuing these raiders is he tries to you know, find out information about the people, that, the raiders who have to- taken his wife. Uh, and in the process, he meets this poet named Seban, who is in the middle of a shell game in the middle of the market when they first meet. They two of them do not get along because Seban is refined. He is a poet. He <laughs> likes women of all shapes and descriptions. And Dross is quite happy with the one woman he's got. Thank you very much. And he's you know an unkempt, scruffy woodsman from the forest. And nevertheless, the two of them forge a fast friendship in the process. But Part of that process included, Seban has invented the legend of Drust the Legend because he's told this poetic story in which the, uh, his uh, Drust's wife, Rowena, has become this princess. Drust has become this great hero. Says, no, he's a woodsman and this is just you know the daughter of a, I can't remember, a, a weaver from across the village sort of thing. But in the legend, she's a princess and Drust is still not particularly happy that people keep misinterpreting. He doesn't understand why he needed to be dressed up. It's because of it was a guy with an axe after a, you know, after his wife. Why did it need all these embellishments? Because they will come anyway, mm. because that's how stories were. And mm. then the thing that kind of cements him in history is essentially a point where he gave up. He gives up on everything because after all's, all's done, there's a lot of sadness in his story. And he gives up on it all and just has this final act of 
I'm done, let's end it. And this is just completely misinterpreted as heroism that inspires thousands upon thousands of people to join him in this epic moment. And then, so ultimately, his, his the thing that cemented him in legend is based on a complete misinterpretation and lie, which just adds to his sadness more. And he's just this incredibly sad old man that people keep putting in battles and he keeps not dying. And it's like... Which oh. is how you become a living legend. Yeah. It's not dying. Yeah. It's key clues, clues in the first word yeah. there. Just constant, his constant failure to not die. So as we try and review rhyming great things. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, because I think part of it though now is any time that you review anything to do with Gemmel, it's going to become a conversation about what he's created and how important he is to the genre. The uh, like we were saying about H.P. Lovecraft on the previous show, yeah. where he, the, the, some, some authors just define. I've got to say, I don't think George Orwell Martin will define anything. No. Um, except perhaps ruining television which he didn't do he just wrote some books that someone used to ruin television except perhaps how you get things adapted for TV is what I was going to say Um, (laughs) whoops (laughs) sorry (laughs) but no I think ruining television is also a fair because the thing is so a review we'll do at some point in the show will be one of Godblind by Alan Stevens which I love to pieces I really do rate it as a novel but it could do without being connected in any way, shape, or form to um, George Orwell Martin's work. How is is it, it connected through comparison? Or? Through comparison. Okay. Yeah. Um, because it's grimdark and everyone defines him as George Orwell Martin's grimdark fantasy. And I just. I want George to just finish. <laughs> to be honest, just just do the Winter Printer. Just, just publish what you've got done. It, it, the bell's gone, pencil's down. Get on with it. Yeah. Pencils down, Martin. <laughs> um, do your next one. Just do it as hand puppets. You know, and we can, and we can be done. Um, Just give us a bullet-pointed list. Give us a bullet-pointed list. Um, and get on with because he wants to do a Silmarillion-style rabbit on. I'd love to read that. I'm more mm. interested in a description of the world than than that. But I don't think I think Martin, I don't think Martin Martin's should be famous for his editing he should be famous for the projects he's contributed to mm-hmm. not for his fantasy where it sounds and again I've not read Gemmel but it sounds like what Gemmel did was help define the genre while the genre was growing up growing up yeah if you see what I mean Very and much. this is where I make myself unpopular with various listeners I don't think that Alan Moore is the trailblazer that a lot of people think Alan Moore is I think people came before Alan Moore blazed a massive trail and Alan Moore did some very clever things, but I, you don't get, you shouldn't get any any biscuits for being for being moody. You know, you shouldn't just just taking an existing story and having a cob on and making it even sadder and making it even grimmer and you know playing some emo music in the background <laughs> doesn't get you doesn't get you extra biscuits. And a lot of Alan Moore's stuff is incredibly great, groundbreaking and incredibly clever and incredibly mm-hmm. well put together. And some of it is just the goth two-step. Killing joke. Is it, it is defining. In so many ways it is defining, and especially to Batman and so, to an extent the action comic books at that time. But yeah, I think it was groundbreaking because it went so far, but 
the same time, I don't know if necessarily everyone was ready for it to go that far yet. But I, it seems I like still am I'm happy it happened. It, it, it's a part important part of the canon. Yeah. It's not the be all and end all. Neither is neither is the Dark Knight, and we've gone on mm. to we've kind of drifted away from. But it's like, yeah, do you, how how do you define? I suppose the consensus defines what the landmarks are. Yeah. And that comes with time. I don't think Killing the Joke will ever not be seen as a landmark because I don't think mm. there'll be a better landmark to come along. It doesn't sound like Legend is ever not going to be a landmark because of where no. it was. I think if you think like Legend was important while July was still being written, um, it's a really long series, and then it's a long it's a long series anyway. But actually, it's almost it's made up of parts in itself, isn't it? It's similar to Discworld. It's a series because it's set in a world. Yeah, there's, um, there's and then the 11... last three are all are completely the... disconnected. Well, yeah, there's a, I think there's eleven Drenai novels in total, uh, and yeah, the first three were Drenai novels. The fourth one. Well, what would have been the fourth one was slightly disrupted by the fact that one of the, the it hadn't rolled some kind of rider rode over a hill and said, "I can't see Jerusalem," and and the writer just David just sat back and said, "Of course you can't see Jerusalem. This is the Draenei world." And I thought, actually, no, this rider looking for Jerusalem is far more interesting. I'll write about him for a bit and had to completely derail his fourth novel, yeah. um, which so that yeah that went a bit off the rail. Yeah, yeah the the I think, does the eleven include the. Uh, the Skilgenon. Yes, character. that's it. Yeah. yeah, there's the last two so were that... Skilgenon. Um, okay. I thought there's... it was the last three. No, as far as I know, there are only two of them. Um, there's one set in the life of Dross and there's one set a long mm. time afterwards. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Winter Song is Waylander, isn't it? Uh, Winter, gonna... Winter Warriors Winter is the later in the same world, but, but yeah. Okay, okay. A, yeah, but there's 11 of them. There, I mean, there are Waylander 1, 2, and 3, there are, you know, they are. Eventually, a trilogy, but you, each one is standalone. You don't need the yeah. second one to enjoy the first one. You don't need the third to enjoy the first two. You can read them in any order you want, which mm. is why I found it easier to just go chronologically. See, I, I've heard writers chronologically like, from the series or from the, the publishing from, from from publishing yeah. publish order. I've heard writers like Joe Abercrombie say things like, you know, Gemmell's one of the points where they start, one of the introductions to fantasy, one of the kind of root causes. Influence is basically one of the influential writers. I suppose what I'm saying is is that though it sounds like Gemmell's an influential I mean I know he is because people keep telling me he's an influential author and I would argue that I would argue that Mirror is an influential author H.P. Lovecraft certainly is, H.G. Wells certainly, uh, you know, his influence will be felt throughout the genre for a very long time Mm. Um, I'm not convinced I'm not entirely convinced that Moore will be except for Killing Joke and a couple of other things and Watchmen so, the yeah, MP. Watchmen. so yes he's influential Gimmins influential is Martin George Orwell Martin is the biggest writer out there but is he is Rowling I mean to an extent one of the things to remember about George R. R. Martin is that he might be one of the biggest writers but most what I've I'm learning more and more, and I've said it on the show before, is people I know who are actual genre fiction fans. Very few of them have read George R. R. Martin. George R. R. Martin is read by non-genre readers. Um, I'm not. I yeah. I don't Darling. actually think people have watched the TV show. They haven't read the books. Darling, I suspect will be. Yes. Because of the books that haven't been written yet. Mm-hmm. Because there are a horde of books that haven't been written yet by people who are approximately Dell's age. Yeah. 
who grew up when they came out who are getting to that certain point where they're like right novel time and start writing and start writing and it's their their first love in the same way that you know for me C.S. Lewis is an influence always will yeah Um, was definitely an influence for me with with a lot of things I mean I remember walking into the library seeing because I I think at the time I was a classical mythology fan in my teens and I saw this this book on the bookshelf in the library which it was just called Legend and I thought that's a really arrogant title for a book so I took it off the shelf and started reading it and it was David Gemmell Legend and I really enjoyed it and I've read all the other ones as well. It's like so, The Magician. I read The Magician because it's like, well, that's where I should start then, surely. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> I hadn't heard of... No, as far as I was aware at the time, it wasn't archetypal. It wasn't... I hadn't heard of David Gemmell before. Mm. I just saw a book on the shelf with the title Legend and I thought, that must be a really arrogant title. Well, how can it possibly... this? How can this book summarise Legend? You know, there's a lot of legend out there. This, you know, this can't be the epitome of it. And then it turned out to be pretty cool. <laughs> then again... Gemmell did get annoyed every, every so often when people said, you know, when people would suggest what's you know the most influential book you've written, and it was Legend, and he'd be thinking, what was my first one? I've written thirty. You're saying I haven't improved at all <laughs> since then. Uh, so there's. I read Echoes of the Great Song because there was a bookshop in Salisbury. Because I love bookshops, I go to them all the time. Um, there was a bookshop in Salisbury in this tiny little shopping precinct. It was also a massive Otakers. And we used to go in the little one in the precinct and Echoes of the Great Song was always sat cover out and I thought the cover looked amazing. It's almost um, like, you know, the green, like, pagan wood kind of... It's a green man. Probably, yeah. With, like... Yeah, the face with the... green man. thing, yeah. It looks almost kind of like that, but obviously it's not um, in any way, shape or form. It was just that sort of motif. And I remember always looking at the book and reading the blurb and thinking it looked really interesting... But at the same time, my head just went, but you don't read grown-up books. So I put it back. And um, I was going on holiday to Ireland with my friend Martha, and I bought it to read. Um, But I also had... um, Goblet of Fire had just come out in paperback, and I bought it in paperback because I didn't used to earn enough money to get the hardback, and it didn't occur to me that mum and dad would just buy it for me because I loved them. Um, and so I'd waited like over six months for this paperback to come out and so we went on holiday I'd already started Echoes of the Great Song and I finished Echoes of the Great Song handed it to Martha and started um, Goblet of Fire while she then read Echoes of the Great Song and we both kind of finished at a similar time and both of us because when she finished she just turned around and she was just like I'm I'm so sad and I was just like I'm so sad <laughs> we just both sat there crying about books to each other and it's just really it was really nice it was it, it was one of the first books I read that kind of broke my world a little bit and then I read Goblet of Fire which broke my world a little bit more in similar ways and it was really nice that someone else had experienced that breaking of the world in the same way I had at the same time I see I know I have a similar story it's sort of reverse I was sitting on a very crowded train reading the Gaunt's Ghost uh, novel and if I say the Ross the word drag right okay that scene yeah and I immediately put the book down down because what do you do you know yeah. they're like what it's essentially there is a George Orwell Martin's got nothing on Dan Abbott for killing characters mm-hmm. yeah um, 
and that's fair because they're they're war stories they're in a war people die that's the point and there is a certain point where um you realize that there there is no hope and he just pulls the carpet right away from you and it's a physical body blow and i just looked up and i was like in that kind of little emo golf moment i kind of like no one has a clue yeah I've literally, I've just looked up from a book as if I've been punched in the face. And no one, no, no, yeah. one, no one in this crowd of people has an idea. It's difficult, isn't it, where you look around you and you're just like, how are you getting on with your normal life? Yeah, I mean, it gets, it got worse, at the time I think it would got, I think it got worse me after I read the book you were talking about, because... Because it gets worse. It gets, well, no, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's not just that it gets worse, it's that, you know, you, you read certain books and you think, okay... As you read through the book, you think, okay, well, this character's got this subplot going on, this character's got this subplot going on. And you read through, you know, for a given character, you think, this character isn't involved in the plot. For, you know, they've spent half this novel unconscious or whatever it is. Whatever it is, you think, okay, well, they've been in quite a few of the books so far, but maybe the authors run out of ideas for this character, and maybe it was, you know, in that sense, it was their time. And then later on, they'll write a short story set years beforehand or in the middle of the series. And, then you're, and this character's vibrant and alive, and you think, you know, you didn't run out of ideas for this character at all. This would have been brilliant afterwards as well, but it happened before, and now I know he's dead. And Iron Star. Yeah. Oh, that, that particular. That's also horrific when you realise its context, because it's. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know how. I mentioned. I mentioned. Right, that's how we got on the down there. But But there, there is a. So I really want to spoil it, but I'll wait until the show's over. And also, producer Al will will set bottle right up in a chair. Yeah, we are talking about events from the eleventh novel in the series, so let's not. (laughs) But there is a he he revisits certain points because the clues in the name go to ghosts. Yeah, Uh, and there's no actual. Well, there is a supernatural element, but not that sort of a supernatural element. Yeah, but they're stealth specialists. That's generally the. But that's the original reason for the name. Also, they die a lot. Yeah, there's no like like, the, the. the, the haunting, as a rule, comes from people's memories. That's what I say, is it memories of those that are gone? Oh. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, this is also a universe where psychic things do occur. But... The supernatural is real in that setting, mm. but that's not the the use of those words. Yeah. Is, it's, it's more... It's interesting, isn't it, is that we consider memory more poignant than the supernatural cause, because at least you can offer that. You know, if the, if, this, if the spirit of your father, the king, turns up and says, I was murdered... Uh, maybe you should do something about that, Hamlet. Um, then that feels le- less of a, an issue than just having really harsh memories and post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Um, gosh, we've got gotten off. We've kind of stayed on topic. We yeah, have. we've, well, we've look, stayed are... on topic completely while there's... not addressing the book at all. But yeah, oddly enough, there are ghosts like that in the novels as well. Um, so. Yeah, well, actually, yeah. Most of most of the Drenai, there is there is always a character fueled by the memories of things that have occurred and those that are gone. Most things occur because of that, and there's yeah. so do, much poignancy a, in the work. There's a lot of older warriors who are fighting because mm. they remember what it was like being a twenty year old and like, being successful. Quest and for they Lost just Heroes. That's yeah. the whole the whole story. Quest for Lost Heroes genuinely broke me at certain points. Mm. It, oh. Would you say that Rhyming Rings is undeniably a Gemmel novel? Yes. 
I mean, the, the, the book, it's the, the copy I've got includes a full, an introduction and a, um, a, an afterword, and it does have a lot of things which you would recognise if you'd read a lot of other Gamel's work mm. as well. Is and it... I think you, Gamel has such a distinct voice. Um, the last Troy novel, he'd passed away before it was finished. Um, the second of the trilogy was finished but not published yet. But he left very intricate notes for his wife Stella to finish the book after him. And you can tell which bits have not been written by him. There's a, He's always had very distinct, this is me and these are my words. Stelgum has gone on to write a couple of other novels yeah. since, which yeah. I've not yet read. You'll forgive the term of praise, please, but would you say you can see his sticky little fingers all the way through? Yeah. Uh, I know what you mean, but yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's a way I tend to describe if you look at certain... So, for example, Good Omens is an example where you can see Neil Gaiman's sticky little hand, and you can see mm. Terry Pratchett's. And sometimes there's just a finger painting mess that, you know, <laughs> that, and that you can't tell. The world's a Libra is Pratchett. Yeah, yeah, you, I think. Would you, you say the, or do you say that that's Gaiman? Because you so a Gaiman um, because I think you've I'd you've read more Gaiman than that. Yeah, yeah. The world's a Libra is definitely Pratchett. But you can sometimes you can tell, mm. and sometimes you really can't because they've worked together so well. Mm. but also in, edit- in editing and other works going back to Martin uh, the wildcard stuff you can see Martin's influence as an editor on various things sometimes it's really hard to call him out on it as well done that twice now where I've gone I'm calling you out on this and he's like I'm dodging that <laughs> <laughs> by, by being an editor and I was like you can do that that's okay I'll try again <laughs> <laughs> I'll try again with a better question um but yes, we should go and talk to a lovely author. We should. Let's go talk to a lovely author. Um, Maria Lewis, welcome to Brave New Words. Thank you so much for having me. So, tell me about your book. Um, well, my first book is called Who's Afraid? And it's the story of a young woman who discovers that she um, she's basically trying to hunt down her family, um, which she's estranged from her father's side of the family, and she learns that she's descended from a line of um, really powerful werewolves, you know, that super relatable story that we've all been through. And um, she goes on this journey, I guess, of self-discovery about learning how to live with the fact that she's a monster and what happens if necessarily you've always thought of yourself as the hero, but you're actually the villain. And how do you reconcile that idea um, of yourself with, with the reality? And the second book, Who's Afraid To, is a sequel of the first and yes, I do like really shitty 80s puns um, because it's spelled Who's Afraid 2 is in T-O-O. And it's basically a continuation of that character's journey. Her name's Tommy Grayson. And um, she's a young biracial woman and a werewolf. And it's kind of a following of her world, I guess. I think good sequels, or like the sequels that I love, things like Aliens and Blade 2, Toy Story 2, um, the, the best sequels expand the world and raise the stakes but stay true to the tone and the themes so that's what I've tried to do with Who's Afraid 2 because the first book is a very personal journey of Tommy's story and what she's going through and the second book is a lot bigger and a lot bigger in scope and bigger in location and more characters and a bigger supernatural world I guess Is it fair to describe the first book as more of a coming of age story and if so why is it? what is it about werewolves that make us want to tell coming of age stories? Well, yeah, it's a coming-of-wolf story, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a coming-of-age story. I think the thing about werewolves is because 
they're of all like the mythical creatures, I guess, like unicorns, centaurs, vampires, all that kind of thing. Um, werewolves, more than anything, are a, a character and a creature that's in transition, and they're constantly in a state of changing, changing forwards and changing back. And so it makes a really nice metaphor for things like, you know, ginger snaps used werewolfism really beautifully in terms of a way to talk about puberty. Um, and who's afraid? I kind of talk about, use werewolfism as a way to talk about being biracial and that idea of sitting in between, you know, not being one, not being the other, being the state of continuously in between. And that is literally what lycanthropy is. It's it's something that you are by day and something that you are by night, which um, which makes it a really, really good device in terms of looking at everything from puberty to identity to sexuality is a big one sexuality tends to go more hand in hand with vampires but there have definitely been werewolf stories where it's all been about a woman's sexuality ginger snaps as well is a little bit like that but also this other movie called when animals dream from a few years ago i think it's it's a scandinavian film i believe it's really really great but it's um it's kind of used as a coming age story for a young teenage girl who's sort of discovering her own sexuality Slash also, she's a giant werewolf. So, you know. <laughs> it's always a bonus when I'm a giant werewolf. So, if we've got. So, the first book is about identity and uh, growing up, and it's also got uh, kick ass werewolves in it. So, how yeah. is it different from the second book where you're seeing you, you're expanding the world further? Do we meet other supernatural entities, or is it more personal? Yes. Than that? Yeah, we meet a lot more. Um, so, the first book it's all told through the prism of Tommy Grace and her experiences. And that's the tricky thing with doing any, any debut book is that um, everything's new to the reader. The characters are new. The characters' personalities are new. The physical location of where it's set is new. The supernatural world is new. The w rules of the world, the creatures are new. And it can be really, really, really overwhelming for someone, especially in this kind of genre of urban fantasy books and supernatural and fantasy. And you have to be really careful not to overwhelm the reader and just one of the things I really hate as a fan of this kind of genre of book is when you're reading it and there's a big info dump of information and I always really hate that and it takes me out of it and so it's really tricky sometimes to be patient and sprinkle things throughout the book and so Who's Afraid is a super personal story because the reader is Tommy. She's learning about this world for the first time and she's learning about the things that she can do, good and bad, because she obviously like you know, power is, is power and what you do with it is up to the person who has it. That's why, you know, you have someone like Superman for all intents and purposes could have been a total evil alien, but because he's raised by Ma and Pa Kent with the, like good all American values and shit, um, he becomes this all American hero. And it's the same with Tommy Grayson. Like there are a lot of bad werewolves in this world, but there are also a lot of good ones. But then there's also a lot of in between and a lot of gray. And so that is kind of the first book, is all about her. It's all about Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. And then the second book is about the world that Tommy now exists in. The first book was introducing you to that world. And then the second book is one of the great things. You've got all the building blocks done already. So writing a second book and playing in that world is so fun. And not that I didn't have a great time writing the first book. I freaking did. It's awesome that I get to write about werewolves for a living. It's been my dream forever. But especially with the second book where... Um, she gets to meet a, a werewolf pack called the Rogues. And basically what happens is in this world is people tend to stick to their blood packs of origin. And the Rogues are people who are all left their different werewolf packs from all around the world, including, you know, 
South America, Germany, Japan, all that, all different countries from all around the world, totally multicultural. And they've gone out as rogue werewolves, but come together and kind of started their own pack. And so Tommy's getting to meet werewolves from different parts of the world with different backgrounds and different abilities. But she's also getting to meet people who have completely different skill sets from herself, including a medium, someone who can talk to and control the dead, ghosts, and a lot of different creatures because they work out of this nightclub in Berlin called Phases, which is kind of like a supernatural hotspot. So it's a really good uh, it's a really good tool to introduce the different supernatural species that are only vaguely mentioned in the first book because there's so much shit going on already. You don't want to, like I said, you don't want to overwhelm people. But by the second book, you've set up a lot of a lot of the things that you want to play with, and so you do actually get the opportunity to to mess around with some things, which is nice. What is the appeal of urban fantasy? Why do we keep returning to uh, this this world of darkness for want of a better term? Um, what is it about the appeal of vampires, werewolves, and things like called bump in the night? I think um, I think it's just like a lot of times all of these creatures are a metaphor for they're telling something or saying something or commenting on something about the human condition in lots of different ways, whatever that necessarily might be. Um, werewolves originally were something that historically were invented by the patriarchy as a way to explain away women's periods and why women were so crazy and also became a way to you know oppress women and to persecute women the same way that witches were it was pretty much the same thing with werewolves it was you know invented by uh very sexist men who wanted to sort of like systematically oppose women and um and keep them down and so they came up with this thing to sort of explain away why women were so crazy for a few days a month and it's really interesting to me because the first ever werewolf movie it was called the werewolf and it was um it was about a woman and it was about a woman who was persecuted um for being a werewolf and this was like 1921 i believe or maybe even earlier i think it's 1919 but it got destroyed in a big factory fire and so there's only one frame of this movie that exists and as we know historically in pop culture when werewolves the stories of werewolves got told they've almost been largely exclusively told by men about men almost for men in a big bad way and it's always been really interesting to me that we had the first werewolf movie actually be about a woman but because it was destroyed in this factory fire and you know back in back in the day film is a very flammable material so shit just was bursting into flames left and right all the time but i think it would have really changed the narrative if the very first werewolf movie we ever had was actually you know, about a woman front and centre. Instead, we've had this male narrative for the past, you know, 100 or so years, and it's just getting around to the time now where we're starting to see more female werewolves and, controversially, werewolves that aren't Caucasian or aren't white. Um, and I've always loved werewolf stories, but it's been very frustrating as a woman to try and find a version of that that's representative of you because I've always belief that if anyone's going to understand stories where there's blood, gore and turning into a monster a few days a month, it's going to be women um, as opposed to men and the female world stories that have been told have been really super interesting and I think that's kind of ties into the larger theme of, of why people love urban fantasy, urban fantasy specifically because it's the world as we know it, that is what urban fantasy is, it's fantasy with elements of the real world and so you see a structure that you recognise but 
there's something sinister going on or there's something magical going on. There's something underneath the surface that you just can't see. And that's something that always captured my imagination as a kid and then as a teenager and then someone in their 20s because I just love that idea that you could just be walking down a street in London and there's secretly a supernatural organization or there's a train to Hogwarts or there's whatever um, operating, you know, just, just under the surface where you can't see. And that's one of the things I've always loved about urban fantasy is um, it ties into something that you recognize, but it's also something completely other, I guess you could say. Um, related and also kind of connect, connected, but let me give it a build up first. So, uh, <laughs> as we record this, we uh, had a whole bunch of awards. It's been awards season for genre fiction, and the the nominations lists have been fairly fairly diverse, fairly interesting. There's been a fairly broad range of people from all over the world, different cultures, and all the rest of it. Um, is the world of genre? as diverse as it likes to think itself or and is it to should we be should we be patting ourselves on the back or should we just be getting on with it oh i don't know that's a tough one um because i come from australia which is a pretty racist country um inherently i'm from new zealand originally and my background is polynesian um so i'm a woman and i'm biracial which is like too uh <laughs> too like shoved in the corner like let's let's not give uh give ladies as many opportunities and then even more so if you're from a background of color but it's it's an interesting thing like growing up in Australia which I said you know is a very racist country getting genre stuff over the line in Australia is an uphill struggle like you would not fucking believe it is so hard and not just in books it's in we have this thing called cultural cringe which started um after the Ausploitation film movement in the 70s and 80s where basically the leading film critic at the time, who was a silver-haired, white, straight man, started this thing where he basically said genre has no cultural uh, significance and has no cultural purpose, and so he refused to review movies like Mad Max, Razorback, Turkey Shoot, Roadkill, um, like historically fun genre, trashy, yes, but like, but unashamedly genre stuff, and he refused to review those movies and so it started this downward spiral of cultural cringe which extended to television and literature as well where if something was genre it was like immediately not blacklisted per se but immediately kind of categorized as not having merit and not having worth and the flip side of that is two hours across the sea in New Zealand as a country artistically and creatively they've always really celebrated genre and champion genre and champion their genre filmmakers, which is, you know, you have someone like Peter Jackson who's like, hey, I have this idea for a movie about brains that explode. Um, Want to give me some money to make it? And they're like, sure, kid, here you go. And then 15, 20 years later, you have him doing things like Lord of the Rings and King Kong. And you know, he's doing the Mortal Engines movie now as well, which is really exciting. And you have all these other great genre filmmakers coming up like Taika Waititi obviously is doing Thor Ragnarok but Nikki Cairo, Lee Tomahura it's really exciting in Australia we're still struggling to just get one genre TV show up you know we've just had Clever Man which is a, a science fiction action television show kind of set in a sci-fi dystopia which is all based around Aboriginal myths and legends and the creative it's it's just fucking brilliant if you have a chance to watch it. I think it's um, available here on BBC and Netflix in the UK, and in America it's on Netflix. But 
it's the world of indigenous myths and legends given a really modern creative spin and used as a way to comment on society and comment on Australia's problem with racism but also the refugee crisis and things like that and the fact that that show exists now is something that's really been groundbreaking in Australia but it is had been really tough for me coming up as someone who came from New Zealand and grew up in Australia who decided that she loved genre and wanted to try and write a genre book I mean there's a reason that who's afraid so much of it's like the audience for genre is present in Australia but it's just a, kind of like a systematic institutional thing. Simpsons or Futurama? Simpsons. Uh, starships or dragons? Oh, oh, God, that's a hard one. Oh, starships. I'd say you could probably do more with starships. I'd say there's more room to do uh, something interesting with starships. Dragons, you only have, uh, I feel like you have a limited range there. Othello or Macbeth? Oh, Macbeth, are you kidding me? Macbeth got witches, yo, all the way. Goblins or trolls? Oh, that's a tough one. Oh, I'm going to go Trolls, purely because Guillermo del Toro tends to work more with Trolls, so he's my master. Twitter or Facebook? Twitter. And finally, Truth or Beauty? Do you say Truth or Beauty? Yep. Oh, so like in what context? Like as in you would be a beautiful liar or you would be ugly but always telling the truth? Either those are entirely finances. I'd, uh, I'd go Truth. Maria Lewis, thank you very much for coming on the show. Do you know what? They were completely lovely. They were really lovely. If you're a publisher or you're an author or you want to be on the show again, I think if we completely ignore... How many rabbits are there now? Oh, God. Three? No. There's so (laughs) many rabbits. And Hartley's been snipped, so it can't be because of that. I think we're not the same rabbit. Oh, God. We are very lost. Um... Let's see if we can leave without disturbing anybody. Um, yeah, at Radio Bookworm on Twitter, hopefully we'll still be around. And um, producer Al. Hi. Del, you go that way. Ross, I'll go that way. Yeah. Uh, actually, no, you better come with me. Uh, oh, good. I thought I was being left behind as a diversion. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll meet in the middle. Uh, and we're gonna run, so bye! Bye.